Welcome to Icons in the Making. I'm your host, Heather Stern, CMO at Lippincott, the creative consultancy behind some of the world's best brands. Join me as I sit down with the leaders of today's most influential brands. You'll hear stories of transformation and walk away with a new perspective on what it means to be an icon. This is Icons in the Making. Just about every brand wants to understand and attract the Gen Z consumer, but few are as loved by this generation as Depop, the peer-to-peer social e-commerce company that has taken the fashion world by storm. Known for its vintage clothing, streetwear, and fresh cohort of online influencers, Depop boasts over 26 million global users, 90% of whom are under 26. Last year, the brand was acquired by Etsy for $1.6 billion, and it continues to shape the ways consumers shop and think about sustainability and self-expression. So today, I am speaking with the king of cool, Peter Semple, Depop's chief brand officer. Peter joined nearly four years ago, which, as he has said, is many lifetimes in Depop terms. In his role, he's responsible for ensuring the brand's global efforts to drive cultural influence at scale while making secondhand fashion the most credible and viable choice for shopping new. Welcome, Peter. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And I'm not sure I can keep the title of King of Cool, but I'm glad to be a representative of all the people making efforts towards that here at Depop. In that spirit, I think we should start with music and shoes, because those those are two of my favorite things, and I think that they're yours. So what are you listening to right now, music-wise? Those are two great, great topics. I've been a huge fan for most of my life of hip hop. So I sort of continually try and keep up with new and interesting hip hop, which kind of evolves and changes shape based on generations, generation. But also I constantly kind of dig back into historical eras. So like, I think my um, favorite musical time is early nineties. New York. Yes. Yes. Amazing. Nas, Jay-Z, all that sort of stuff. So that's my steady diet. But then I just try and listen to, other stuff that's bubbling up, just so I can kind of be aware of it from a kind of social currency point of view, especially with a young audience. Awesome. Let's talk shoes. So you have accumulated quite a shoe sneaker collection. So tell me how many do you have? Have you sold any on Depop? What's your most prized possession? So I have a lot. And actually, I'm sort of now potentially embarrassed to reveal the number. (laughs) My defense... I've been collecting for more than 20 years. And for a while, I worked for a bunch of Nike Inc. companies, which kind of helped. I've sold, yes, some of them on Depop. I've sold some of mine. I've sold some of my wife's collection because she's sort of a master collection since we've been together too. I have a few really special things in the collection from Kanye's Nikes, which is very cool, to one of 24 pairs they made for a small shop in a boutique in Berlin in, in 2003. And I'm just a big fan of design and all of the kind of deep nerdery and history that goes with those things. That is awesome. And it it feels like you've landed in the right spot. You began in 2019 as chief marketing officer. You're now chief brand officer. What does that entail? And what do you love about what you do? A very potted quick journey that I've been on before Depot, which is grew up in advertising agencies, briefly a copywriter, then strategy and account management for a number of brands here in the UK, big brands. I moved to New York in mid-2000s, in my mid-20s, and started working for an agency called Anomaly, where we were doing big brand work for brands like Nike, Converse, Umbro, 
And then I went to Google and my role at Google across the sort of seven and a half years or something I was there was a mix of marketing, innovation in general to make Google technology more useful and also kind of taking the kind of consumer insight brain and partnering very closely with the product organization because you can ultimately have really interesting progress. You don't, if you make the product better, you don't even necessarily need to advertise how to use it because people understand how to use it intuitively. So I joined Depop because it felt like this really fascinating culmination of all of my experience commercially and, and professionally. And then along the way, you know, I've been involved in various parts of fashion communities. And what's really fascinating about that is the communities I was part of in the early 2000s, I think in, in lots of ways are prototypical of what you see on the community side of the Depop things. So it's a number of people brought together by a common interest. And sure, there's buying and selling at the heart of it and transaction and accumulation of things. But then there are also all these really interesting other parts of it, as in people get to know one another, people are introduced to new things, people's understanding of a topic they love deepens because there are other people they can share it with. And when I met the CEO of Depop in 2018, I told her that I had been part of these communities. And in fact, it sounds kind of crazy to some people, but my my son's godfather is the is someone I met on these sneaker forums. So these things really have life and world and industry changing potential, these communities. And as I say, a number of the people who were in the chat rooms with me have gone on to be, you know, the Hype Beast founder was there at the time, the Heist of wow. there at the time. These people have gone on to work for the sneaker brand. So I think lots of the stuff that I've been deeply passionate about combined with technology, consumer, culture, brand work, hopefully maybe the right, the right kind of combination of things for, for Depop. And then to answer your question about the four years, the many lifetimes, as you said in your intro, joined as chief marketing officer. There were a number of people doing parts of marketing around the business, and they weren't, that wasn't really a consolidated effort because it was a sort of mid-stage startup. It was post mm-hmm. So the first thing I did when I got here was actually take this incredible talent, some which had experience, a lot of which just came from the community itself and helped shape them into do we all speak a common language? How do we make sure we multiply the things we're doing versus lots of interesting people doing interesting things in interesting but different places? I became chief brand officer in early 2021. And that was as a result of, as we grew, we went through Series C and then actually we faced really big growth because the lockdown dynamic in 2020 really helped Depop. And I sort of Mm -hmm. always have to say that somewhat with a heavy heart because- Other brands and other businesses suffered in so many ways. But as we began to scale up, the reality of what our marketing mix was became a mix of brand work at scale, engagement work, cultural astuteness and insight-driven work, and as a technology, as an app-based marketplace, performance marketing is a great amount of what we also do. How do we show up in relevant channels efficiently at scale? And in reality, our marketing mix is the combination of both of those. Like many other businesses, we had an SVP of growth here who was brilliant at the performance marketing thing. And we decided we were effectively splitting marketing responsibility. So she became the chief growth officer at the beginning of 2021. My title changed to chief brand officer. And we combine the different talents and different experiences we have for the marketing, the overall marketing offering, as well as 
I look after ESG and impact and DEI and sustainability and other parts of the way the brand manifests and mm-hmm. she has different commercial growth levers that exist beneath her that are sort of broader than simply marketing. So it's perhaps an unorthodox way of organizing, but it means that we both bring the discipline and the experience of our long careers. And ideally, we get the best of both worlds when we work together. It sounds like a great match and it feels like you were meant for this, like you were born for this role and everything that you've done up until this point has has gotten you there. I want to touch on something that you just mentioned, which is what I think we often talk about, certainly our clients talk about showing up in the right way, in the right time, in a way that feels authentic to who you're trying to reach. That's what everyone is trying to do. How how do you do that? I would just love for you to peek under the hood into some of the ways in which you are really building that community and able to achieve that, that resonance that so many are searching for. It's a combination of things and it's a combination of, of quite a broad variety of people. And hence my thing at the beginning of, I definitely can't be the king of cool, but I'm glad we project yeah. our cool to the community. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm a British man in my 40s. Am I that close to what the US Gen Z audience is doing and living through and experiencing? No, I have a point of view on it and I'm fascinated by observing it. But in order to actually successfully speak to them, we need to listen to them or we need to have people on our team who really are part of that demographic, part of that audience. So our marketing mix and the way we approach the kind of the audience understanding piece is a combination of data on one end. Obviously, we have a, we're a marketplace. There's a lot of data signals that come through our understanding of how people are actually interacting on the platform itself. And we can make decisions based on that. And we can make merchandising decisions and we can identify trends. But then you also just need to interact with the real world. And part of that is, as I say, we've always hired people from the community of Depop to come in here and teach us what it's like to live through it. We encourage everyone in the business to participate in it. And I don't always have the time necessarily to, I don't sell on a weekly basis, but when I'm on holiday, I'll sell a few things in order to remind myself of what the experience is like and to see what the language coming back in the interaction from DMs is and all of that sort of stuff. And we, as I say, encourage the entire company to do that. And then we have a number of different people in the company, be that our PR team, be that our social media team, we're obviously reviewing and seeing what is being talked about on social, prompted by us or organic. We have this group, the Trends Task Force, who work across customer insight and surveying and meeting with people and identifying sellers, as well as seeing what the merchandise is sort of bubbling on our platform and helping determine themes from that that will help us put more of the right things in front of the right people. And then we actually specifically have a seller engagement team, which is Mm speaking to the sellers, primarily the top sellers, because they're the ones who've committed to building a business at scale and Depop. But we have daily interactions with them. We have Slack interactions with them. We have a different system, which we use to make sure there's a consistent dialogue. And the wonderful thing I think about this specifically younger community, Gen Z, but also the kind of younger millennial end is they're very vocal. So they're willing to tell you all the things you need to understand about what they're interested in or where they're even having problems with the app. And then as a business like us, you really have to pay attention to those things and listen to them and take action on them. And that gets you on the cycle of 
them feeling like you're listening, you're fostering their ideation, you're there as a platform for them, and you build the mutual trust. And, and ultimately, without interesting people transacting with interesting things and expressing themselves on our platform, we're an empty technology server. So mm-hmm. our responsibility to them as an audience, but also as a business to do that, because that's how we'll continue to build. What I'm taking away is that active, always on dialogue that's continuing and this co-creating of really what Depop is. The trends piece is interesting. I'd love to learn more about about that team and about some of the trends that are currently on your radar or on their radar. What they do is they they effectively build an internal press presentation, which is our fashion themes presentation on a quarterly basis. And that's taking a number of signals from all the places I've mentioned, as well as doing some external industry reading and listening and checking with other sources of consolidated industry information. And then they build from that a number of key themes, which we think are likely to be resonant in the coming few months and that we can fulfill. Mm. The great thing about the secondhand market, Depop, is there are tens of thousands of items being added every day. So broadly, whatever anyone is looking for, there's probably a number of interesting versions of it existing within Depop. So as these trends ebb and flow, and they do that sort of with increasing speed when you think about what TikTok is engendering and someone wears something in a particular style blows up and it's replaced two weeks later by something else. The secondhand market is a really good answer to, hey, if you want cottage core, well, we have infinite plaid dresses and cardigans existing in the Depop. So how do we merchandise them and package them as the answer for people who stumble upon the cottage core theme and want to go participate in it? So anyway, the, the fashion task force builds these internal presentations and structures out that are then disseminated across the products and the marketing organization so that everyone is sort of reading from the same hymn sheet when we're thinking about the merchandising decisions, when we're making an ad, what are the types of fashion, what are the types of themes that we want to relay in that ad explicitly or somewhat implicitly, when we're thinking about the merchandising on the site itself, what are the interesting things to show up and to kind of prioritize over other stuff? And to your question of what's interesting now, you know, I think this is sort of a version of what's been happening since last summer in the kind of post-lockdown world, but freedom of expression and various themes that kind of iterate off that continue to be a real factor for the young audience. And, and it's we see a number of these kind of freedom dressing notions and even flex dressing of, I want to recreate myself. I think we see that happening, which is still people wanting to hold on to excitement, self-expression, and actually fun and cultural engagement in the world, despite various other things. I think there is a special sauce that is inherent within the Depop brand. And I think it comes back to really having a deeper understanding of your consumers and how they want to engage with you and with each other. And then obviously sustainability, you had mentioned before, that's something just in terms of your own efforts. You've managed to make sustainability accessible, desirable. How are you continuing to motivate and excite people to change consumption behavior? And where do you see this kind of going over time? I think we're sort of uniquely placed. And, you know, this precedes me, Simon, who the founder of the business many, many years ago, 10 or 11 years ago, set it up to be community driven and 
to sort of infuse that community with a bunch of creative people with interesting taste and interesting things to sell. And so he set out to create a thing that was appealing from the outset. And interestingly, circularity and secondhand consumption was sort of a byproduct of it because it was these people selling things they owned. And that wasn't necessarily what he started doing. He started by going, I bet if we got cool people to curate stuff, that would excite shoppers. What we're in the position of now having tens of millions of users and this kind of groundswell of youth and youth culture and youth digital native youth self-expression is we really do have a, sort of a lens on the exciting end of secondhand fashion. Like secondhand fashion has always been available. We'll have all known people across the years who've gone really interestingly digging in the Goodwill bins or in charity shops here in the UK and were able to find that gem. What you have with, with something like Depop is a number of those curators finding the really interesting things, presenting them in an interesting way and making them accessible at new scale to anyone. So I think we are, as I say, uniquely placed to do the desirable and exciting bit of it, as well as being another product of access for secondhand fashion. And I think ultimately long-term secondhand needs to be exciting because we're all conditioned to buy new fashion. There's new fashion thrown at us every day where we want new, we want constant newness. So accessibility alone for secondhand isn't going to get us to change consumption behavior. We have to be more interesting. We have to be more on the pulse. We have to be an answer to the desires or the things you saw. I saw a rapper do a thing and I'm influenced by that. I want to find an outfit similar. We need to get people to think that they can come to Depop and find those things because they really can, as I say, country mm-hmm. exists. So our plan is that we will continue to drive consumption behavior by being exciting. And in some respects, that might be a Trojan horse to sustainability for some people. There are definitely some people who come here because they're values driven, they align with us as a secondhand business, they want to shop here first. I think for lots and lots of other people, they're still looking at, is it cool? Do I think it's good enough quality? Is it the right price? Before they get to, oh, and I'll feel better if I buy it secondhand versus new. So we have to find a way of catering to people for whom secondhand and sustainability isn't necessarily a primary motivator. We have to bring them in in other ways. And the good news is we've all become so much more educated about our personal impact or the impact of industries like fashion in the last 10 years. But I think we're still some way off before it becomes a primary motivator, and it may never do. So if we can Trojan horses, say, people into the secondary market by being exciting and dynamic and attractive and trend-led, then I think we're on with a chance of succeeding as a business and succeeding to change consumption behavior. Yeah, and I think your point about not everybody is driven to make that conscious decision. And so how do you build the story and the excitement around it in order for that then to become the decision. You mentioned a little bit about celebrity. I'd I'd love to just understand the role of celebrity and other influencers and partnerships that, again, create this world that people want to be part of and, and what has been some lessons learned in kind of managing through that. It sort of connects back to the thing you were saying earlier about we want to be cool, we want to be desirable, in order to, for people to be interested in you, you have to do interesting things and partnering with interesting people or institutions or brands. That's one way we can propel Depop forward, propel the idea of circular fashion. And so you know, when you think about 
celebrities and influencers, we sort of deal with a number of different tiers. Notably, I think last year we did a project with Olivia Rodrigo, who's obviously gone on to become this enormous and like yeah. fascinating musician and artist. And so she's one example of very large scale. We just did a partnership with Charlie XCX that's sort of rolling out at the moment, who again, you know, had a, I think a number one album this year in the UK and a number two album in the US. So very big music culture, cult of personality. And so we we interact with people at that scale. And of course, we need them to have values alignment with who we are. So ultimately, they need to be interesting style and fashion icons because they'll provoke people to think about those things. And ideally, they also come with some inbuilt sort of validity in terms of the agenda we're pushing, which is helping people turn to secondhand fashion. So the celeb piece is about embedding ourselves in people's minds and their lifestyles and aligning ourselves with the people who motivate them to action, because that's very much the case. You know, we then do lots and lots of kind of much smaller tier micro-influencers or specific social media platform influencers, you know, YouTubers who can kind of talk you through what they're clearing out in their closet, what they're selling, and they obviously have really strong engagement from their specific audiences. So as you tally up the amount of those people that we work with, you start to reach millions and tens of millions of people. We have an interesting program going on at the moment, which is sort of called a brand ambassador program internally, and that's working actually more primarily with stylists. So Mm. Harry Lambert, who's Harry Styles' stylist, in in addition to a number of other things, sort of working with him, and he's just been to Fashion Week dressed entirely in clothes he sourced off Depop, and that's interesting and provocative, and he's promoting that on his channels, and these things will capture the attention of media and various other outlets because it's interesting that he's Harry isn't wearing the latest latest of a thing he's chosen to go and look through the existing inventory on a platform like Depop we wield these different call it tiers of interesting talent I think it's a never-ending process of evolution to work with talent so I think at the heart of it has to be Who are the right people to align our business with that will help us continually unlock new resonance with the audience we're reaching? And ideally, we find someone who is going to help us reach a new swathe of audience that we actually haven't spoken to particularly yet. And so their influence help carry Depop as a business and carry circular fashion forward. I think the other thing you mentioned is actually brands. And so, again, if we can partner with brands that our audience or a youth-driven audience loves or has history with, and if we can partner with them in a way that introduces their audience to secondhand fashion, again, that's a really powerful level with it for us. So if I think about in the last six months alone, we've partnered with Doc Martens on a project where they resole and effectively refurbish um, used Doc Martens that they sell exclusively through us. We did an interesting partnership with The Sims, which is kind of mm-hmm. an interesting one and very relevant in terms of all of the kind of metaverse conversation that's exploded. But we're showing up and introducing thrifting and particular Depop styles within a gaming environment that has the potential to meet to reach tens of millions of people. We have a few coming that are both in the sort of technology and culture space, and that brings with it very, very brilliant and massive scale, and some sort of heritage brands that have decades of love. Like we actually, in 2019, before the lockdown, 
we did a really interesting partnership with Ralph Lauren. And I think, and it was an amazing step forward for them to think mm-hmm. about we're going to interact with the secondhand market. And for us, we as Depop, and we were a much smaller business then, took over their European flagship store. Every single window was Depop. And that was an wow. amazing view for us. So I'm really excited that we'll continue to work with brands that can, as I say, help us reach new audiences. And the trade-off is it's good cachet for them. Actually, they're interested to find a way of resonating with a younger audience that does lean more towards values-driven sustainability. Culture is everywhere. It's not just online, right? It's not just in social media and how you are thinking about physical spaces and pop-ups and other ways in which you can connect with your audiences. Where do you see growth coming from? And as you think about new audiences, you know, there's certainly a cohort that loves you and that you love, and you're kind of building on that. But what's kind of the next frontier, either from a demographic standpoint or a psychographic standpoint or a geographic yeah. standpoint? Where do you see growth coming from? Our business has been built in large part on a Gen Z audience and with a Gen Z audience and for a Gen Z audience. And it's sort of it's a real point of pride that so many of our audience are under the age of 26. But the notion of sustainability, this kind of notion of grand change of consumption behavior isn't limited to people under 26. As I say, I'm in my 40s. It's appealing to me and I can shop second. I'm 26, so I'm right. I'm right. So I think what we've consciously done, we began doing it at the beginning of last year. We're growing up, I think, as a business and we're starting to think about how we definitely never want to lose our commitment to this young audience. But it becomes interesting to go, how do we make sure we're not excluding an older mm-hmm. audience? And if we continually reinforce solely the we're for Gen Z and of Gen Z narrative, are we actually, as I say, excluding people who could fruitfully come here and participate in the community and find things to wear and bring their audiences in, et cetera, et cetera. So, we're sort of thinking about it from a kind of expansion on both horizons. Like one, youth and the new generation will always shake up everything. And Gen Z has helped us shape the business we are. Gen Alpha will not be far behind. And it will be fascinating over the years to see how they change consumption behavior, how they change the ways in which businesses should operate. So we have to keep an eye on that. Obviously, they're too young at the moment, but they will land in our world or have the potential to land in our world in the coming years. And we're also sort of going, what does it look like to, and how how do we need to reshape our brand? Who are the people that we might need to align with to open the aperture to an older audience who might not previously have considered us, who might be getting driven to the notion of secondhand fashion through a number of other influences in their life. From a brand aesthetic point of view and a kind of core brand messaging, how do we retain youth as a really attractive part of our business? But ensure we're not closing the doors you know language even the ways in which we shoot films have to evolve slightly so they don't maybe the freneticism of thing that feels like a tiktok edit isn't going to cross over into appeal to an older older audience so we make aesthetic and call it cultural messaging decisions Mm -hmm. and then actually genuinely that's where partnering with paying attention to the kind of inventory that's appealing to different audiences and partnering with brands. And we just ran a campaign here in the UK and the campaign for the first time had a whole variety of ages represented in it, right up to, I think nearly 50 was the, probably the oldest person in it. And it becomes really interesting seeing this, the vibrancy of the Depot community, seeing 
the fashion and the styles that truly can cross generation. They're not solely the domain of people under 26. And it actually becomes really exciting presenting those people together as long as you do it in an aesthetically interesting way. So we are definitely looking to scale up the audience. We have an eye on what is this next generation going to do and what are they going to shake up that we need to listen to and pay attention to and learn from. And ultimately, we're trying to sort of position ourselves less as we're for an age, but more for we are a place where you can fruitfully find a better alternative than shopping firsthand. And it kind of doesn't matter what age you are, and we don't want you to feel like you wouldn't find what you're looking for here. The Etsy acquisition, that's a a pretty big game changer. Tell me about how that's impacting what you're doing day to day and, and what that's providing. Yeah. The deal completed July 14th, 2021. We've had a long-standing relationship with Etsy, actually. We've always had this collaborative relationship because we exist, the, the dynamics we undertake as a business or involved with as businesses are similar, mm-hmm. but we've had quite vastly different audiences. So it's kind of useful to share notes with someone who isn't a competitor. And that kind of mutual respect thing grew across the course of time. And then, yeah, so last year we had a conversation with them sort of early on in the year and it manifested and, and they decided to buy us. They're building a, what they call the house of brands. So they actually, they bought the first marketplace Etsy Inc bought was called Reverb and it's a music instrument and equipment marketplace. And they actually bought subsequent to us, a Brazilian marketplace called Elo7. So the notion is very much these different marketplaces that serve different interests for different audiences. What Etsy brings to all of them is years and years of operational excellence. And And so it has been a really fascinating year of call it integration and kind of value partnership with us because they've tackled a number of the things that we're tackling. You know, they're thinking about technological scale. Well, here are some things we tried that didn't work. Try these things instead or their wholesale lending us engineering teams to build out parts that we may not have the kind of internal capacity and resource to build ourselves. They're enormous in scale. Mm-hmm. They're in multiple markets simultaneously. They've been through the international expansion thing enough to have a playbook on it. And they're a good reference point for, hey, did you try this? How did it work out for you? And I think the interesting balance for us, and I speak a little bit with the other sort of affiliate businesses within the house of brands is knowing when to draw the line between the stuff they've tried that worked for them or understanding the fundamental rule of it, but not necessarily applying it wholesale to your business because we are, we're different. We're culturally led, we're brand led in a way that Etsy hasn't always been. We definitely have the same underlying values. We definitely have the same desire to help people build businesses and kind of connect people around unique inventory but we've built our businesses in quite different ways. So right. it's very valuable for us to go, hey, Etsy, do you have some point of view on revise on this? And then consider it alongside the things we know to be true about our business. And that helps us make decisions. There's mutual yeah. respect and partnership, but you actually recognize also the things that retain some level of deep popness that isn't just something that can be scaled across everything. Okay, Peter. So I'm going to end with this question. Who is your icon? It is a brilliant question. I had one boss in my career who was amazingly conviction-driven. 
he was driven by doing what he thought was right for the end user mm. at all times, even if it was sometimes contrary to the short-term goal of the business or short-term commercial gain. His fundamental belief was if you obsess about what the person you're trying to serve wants and you really deeply try and understand them, you will be on the right track. I'm very lucky to have had a number of really powerful mentors in my life. On a sort of more sort of large-scale <laughs> cultural thing, RZA of the Wu-Tang Clan, when I was at boarding school, very young, someone gave me the Wu-Tang record and it blew my mind and it kind of expanded my sort of cultural appetites to really fall in love with New York City, New York music, New York art, New York fashion, and all of these things that actually have gone on to quite substantially shape my life. I moved to New York many years later, more or less inspired by falling in love with the Wu-Tang record at the beginning. So I, I've interestingly read tons of, of stuff Rizzo has wrote, written about his philosophies on life, his understanding of numerous different disciplines and religions and philosophical beliefs and combined them into some interesting points of view that have driven his decisions, that have driven his creative output. And funnily enough, they continue to kind of resonate with me. And I met him once and he kindly wrote in my book, he, he wrote a brilliant book called The Tao of Wu. He kindly sort of wrote in mind, Peter, be a fisherman of men. And I was like, I'll try my best, Rizza. But then I sadly left the copy of the book on a plane at some oh, point. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> Those are both great icons. I think Depop is for sure an icon in the world of brands that mean something to people and that are doing innovative things. I just want to thank you so much for spending time with me this afternoon and basking in all your coolness and all the coolness that Depop is, is giving to the world. I think you're doing amazing things. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, share with your colleagues and friends and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling really generous, leave us a five-star rating. Thanks, and I'll see you next time. Thank you.